I had a lot of chores. I'd cook my parents' breakfast in the morning. I made all the beds in the house. I did the laundry. I cut the lawn. Could it be that Dr. Sanjay Gupta's professional success is connected to the chores of his childhood? I helped run the household. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest, neurosurgeon, chief CNN medical correspondent, author and father, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay Gupta, here, I haven't seen you <laughs> in several years, but you haven't changed at all. Welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you. And thanks for making the time. Right now I'm in the middle of doing a series, and I think I'm calling it a commencement address for the parents of adolescents. So you're just on the verge of that right now. Yeah. And, and it's like, because we need some guidance. And why do we need guidance? Because there is a phenomenon now and I'm interviewing a lot of people who are really on the front lines of this, called overparenting yeah. or extreme parenting or helicopter parenting. And they're finding that parents, because they feel the competitive pressures out there and because they feel that the main ticket for our kids is to get into that elite name college, they are doing so much to pave the way for their kids to ensure continual success that by the time the kids get into college, they are not able to function effectively on their own without their parents. Having experienced your success, does it drive your parenting in terms of when you assess, I want to protect my kids from failure or I want to expose them to failure? Well, you know, I will preface by saying this is probably one of the biggest topics of discussion we have in our home uh, between me and my wife. And even when my friends come over, a lot of my friends nowadays we make because they have children uh, around the same age as our children. We get to know them through schools and, you know, through the neighborhood and things like that. So this, this, this is a huge topic. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad that, that people talk about it because I think for a long time people didn't talk about it at all. First of all, I would tell you that, that you know, I went to public schools. Uh, I went to public uh, grade school, high school, and public college and university. Um, I wasn't a particularly great student when I was in middle school and even the early part of high school. I have to pause on that. <laughs> Sanjay, I was not a particularly great student in middle school and early into high school. Early part of high school. When did it change? I think it changed sort of, you know, sophomore, junior year of high school and and even then I think it, it wasn't as much of a change as it was um, I mean I got better grades and all that sort of thing but I, I didn't really sort of figure out what I wanted to do with my life and think until I think I was getting closer to senior year of high school and that's when I think start, things started to click in a, a lot better for me um, I, I needed I needed to know what this was all leading to you know th there was so much process it seemed um, and, and so much of what we were learning, uh, some of it was fascinating, but a lot of it just seemed procedural, and, and I didn't particularly enjoy that, that aspect of it. Um, I think I, had, I went to good schools. It wasn't that the schools weren't good. It's just that I, I didn't have a particular passion, and I think that, that that became a really important point for me. When, when, when I figured out what I really wanted to do, then I could do nothing else. I was going to, that, you know, my parents, they, they used to joke that I, I I was always sort of, you know, sort of on them about like, what am I gonna do? You know, I'm, I'm bored. I there's not, I, I have nothing that I want to do, and I'd come home, do your homework. Well, it's boring, you know, all that sort of stuff. But then when I decided I became interested in, in science and specifically medical sciences, 
you know, they, they, my mom jokes that she couldn't, she lost me. She says, I, I, was no longer, I no longer saw him anymore because I was just gone all the time. I was reading constantly and, and, uh, and that became a, a, a real North Star for me. But, but going back to, you know, just being parents ourselves, I find a few things really ironic. Um, one is that some of the same traits that our children have that sometimes drive you nuts as a parent, uh, you know you will, they will probably be more successful because of them. Their doggedness, their, their, their just determination towards a certain thing, they, they, it may drive you insane because your little kid's asking you something all the time and just on you, and you think, just let that go. But sometimes it's that persistence and that, that, that doggedness that I think sets them up for success. So I try not to, you know, to, to knock that character trait out of them too much. And I also sort of, uh, I think, have, have um, realized a little bit more that, that I, I want to spend time just sort of figuring out what makes them tick, you know, uh, what they really, truly enjoy. And they don't know sometimes, for sure. So that's, I think, probably the thing that I've been able to offer to them the most was, what, what are you passionate about? Because if they figure out what they're passionate about, they're going to, they're going to not only be successful in that particular area of their lives, but they're going to to be happier. You know, they're gonna they're gonna find something that really turns their their their, their crank. And and I that that's what I see my role as as dad to do. It's not that the other things are lost on me. It's just that that's probably where I put most of my energy and resources with my own kids. And so two things. I, I just want to rewind a little bit to that moment in senior year. It took you till senior year to find out. Some people it takes much longer, but. Was it a teacher, or was it something you stumbled upon? What 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 suddenly triggered this love of medical science? You know, it was really interesting. My, my parents are both engineers, and um, and they and they're academics. You know, my dad taught for a while at various various places, and it was a great childhood for me in, in so many ways because I had parents who 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 clearly. Um, they, they loved learning, they loved academics, and they loved to teach. So, you know, my dad would teach me a lot of things around mathematics. He's, he's a mathematician, and um, so it, th that was all great for me. And I don't, you know, and I think everyone has different upbringings, but I was lucky in that regard f for sure. My, my, my mother's father, who I was very close to, uh, who's passed away now for a long time, had a stroke when I was in my junior year of high school. And it was a profound experience for us because, you know, there's nobody in my family who was in the medical profession. So we didn't spend a lot of time in hospitals at all. And, and doctors were sort of this black box for me. You know, we had an uncle, I think I lived in a different state, who was a doctor. And I was always, you know, whenever he, I visited with him, I asked him about his life and his career, but that was it. So suddenly my grandfather and somebody I was very, very close to was in the hospital. And he had a stroke, and I and I was there with him. I used to go visit him nearly every day. And these doctors, uh, who who happened to be neurosurgeons, although you know I didn't pick neurosurgery till later, but they happened to be neurosurgeons, were the ones caring for him. And they ended up doing this operation on him that restored blood flow to his brain. And it was just this unbelievable thing. Like that was their job. I couldn't like I was used to people laying bricks, being on the line in, in engineering facilities drawing sketches of what a new car might look like, but the idea that your job was simply to go help somebody and you were trained to do that, that was the first time that the, my love of science, generally speaking, started to, 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 to really uh, merge with, with 
medicine and and the more compassionate parts of science like the so that I think that's what happened which is so interesting because so that experience and I've spoken to you know a, a lot of child development psychologists that experience happened away from your parents mm -hmm. it sounds like you were visiting your relative alone yep and uh, and it was serendipitous yeah uh, and you you were well you were driven by two things I guess your compassion and your curiosity yeah I, I think so, and, and and these doctors, they happen to be really nice nice folks as well, because I, I, I'd like to ask questions, and they took time and asked and answered my questions. You know, I was 15 years old, whatever, at the time, and they're probably pretty busy, you know, when they come around making rounds and stuff, and they're talking to my grandfather primarily, and all of a sudden this 15-year-old's asking questions, and sometimes the questions were about them. So what else you got to do today? So wait, you're going to do this, and now you're going to go do that? So yeah, and so where's that patient? You know, just these types of questions. So, so the the journalist was inside you back then too. Uh, I guess you were unaware of that, of yeah. course. Yeah. But but this yeah this the, curiosity, like you said, it's I think the curiosity was what 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 drove that. And if you just ask a few questions, all of a sudden, you might not even know what's important to you, and then suddenly somebody says something, and you think that's exactly that's exactly me. That's and you never even you wouldn't have been able to describe it a moment earlier, but all of a sudden the person describes it, in, in, in their own life in their own context, and you think that's what I want. You were a, sounded like a bit of a lazy student mm -hmm. until senior year, junior, senior year of high school, and you had that transformative moment. You know, an overparenter today would sit with that kid and make sure that that kid had the experience of working hard and working through the stuff that was boring to him. It doesn't sound like your parents did that. I, I worked hard in other ways. You know, I did chores. You know, I had. I, there wasn't that the the work ethic was not lost you know it just wasn't around necessarily around books stop you did chores yeah so I spoke to a woman who's part of this series Julie Lithcott Haynes she was the Dean of freshmen at Stanford University for 10 years and she has seen the impact that over parenting parents who do stuff for their kids too much has had on their ability to function at school. She told me the story of a freshman who came into her office and said, I've got a class in 15 minutes. It's the beginning of the semester. I don't know where it is. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and she's got a class at 3.15, and she doesn't know the location. This is, you know, an office with internet capacity, with terminals for people to use. She has a smartphone, and yet she decides to call her mom in another country, many time zones away, to have the mom figure out where the next class is. And the mom was quite happy to help out. That just reliance upon parent to tell me what to do and where to go, even though I am perfectly capable or ought to be, and there are people in this office employed by the university to help me, you know, that- Did this happen right in front of you, basically, or? It did, actually. Wow. This doesn't just happen at Stanford. And so, you know, so, th so this whole idea of, 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 of letting kids do it themselves. In her book, she said, there was a major study done at Harvard beginning in the 1940s with one graduating class. They followed them, biggest longitudinal study ever. The biggest predictor of success, they said, was chores. What chores did you do as a oh, kid? I had a lot of chores. I, you know, and, and this is, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm the son of two Indian immigrants, you know, and, uh, you know, kids in, in 
my family in, in, that live in India do a lot of chores. I mean, you, you, you maintain a household as a kid. I mean, you, the parents are, are, they have other things that they have to attend to. So, you know, so for me, you know, it's kind of remarkable to think about, and, and it's not at all flattering in that regard because this was just the way it was, but I'd cook my parents' breakfast in the morning. I made all the beds in the house. I did the laundry. I cut the lawn. You had how many siblings? I have one brother who's 10 years younger. When he was born, I was 10, and he was born, and by the time he was two, when I was 12, I was babysitting him. He'd come, you know, my parents both worked. Uh, they both worked on Saturdays as well, so we had one day a week where they weren't working, but the rest of the time, when I was not at school, I was caring for my brother in addition to the other stuff. That was just, that's just the way it was. That was life. And this was here in Michigan, was it? That was in Michigan. And, um, you know, I'd even take him out, you know, as a 12-year-old pushing the two-year-old around in the strollers around our neighborhood, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, my, my parents like tea in the morning. They have a very certain way that they like their tea. I knew how to make their tea perfectly. You had to add the milk at the exact time when the water started to boil. I still remember this stuff like it was yesterday, how, many, how much sugar they would take. Uh, and, and they would have tea in the morning and the afternoon. They'd have different amounts of sugar depending on what time of day it was. All this stuff. That, that, it, it was, you know, I helped run the household. And then when my brother was born, I was not an older brother. I was a third parent for him. You know, I, I, most of the fun experiences he's had in his life before I moved out uh, were, be, were with me, you know, the older brother. That was just sort of life. And I don't mean it in any way to, for, for your listeners to say that my kids do that. I have not been able to crack the code with my own kids the way that my parents did with me. Uh, but I think a lot of it gets back to motivation again, you know, and, and like I have one of my kids who, who if, you, if I asked her to help me take out the garbage, she would be on it right away and be helping push the thing. My older daughter would probably hem and haw a little bit, and, and my younger one, she's still probably too young to really figure out what she would do. But it gets back to this, this, this idea a little bit of the motivation, like should, do you offer them money to do chores? Do you appeal to their better angels? And Do you say, hey, look, this is the way it was for me when I was your age? I don't know the answer to that question, but I, do, but I do think that we all do have a fundamental sort of bit of narcissism in us. When my middle daughter runs to go help me, I think part of it is because she wants to look good. She wants to be the favorite child. And this is, is that a bad thing? That she, she's not doing it because she wants dear old dad not to have to push all the garbage down himself. She wants to, to curry favor with dad. Is that a bad thing? I don't know, maybe not, she's a sweet kid. But can narcissism coexist with altruism? Yes, I think the answer to that is, is absolutely yes. Um, but I think, I think some transparency around it would make the equation easier for everybody. Like, well, like if I were to really sit her down, she's eight, and say, why are, you, why are you so anxious to help me? Why are you the one who always has her bed made perfectly in the morning and all that? Like, what's really dry? Like, you, you, maybe I'd feel like a bad parent for even asking it. Just take it, right? I mean, how often do you get a gift Have like you ever that? asked her? Not really. Not really done that because I'm a little, uh, you, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a sure what, what impact that would have on her to start to question these types of things. Because I guess sometimes if you put too much of a microscope on their actions, yeah. it can distort things. Right. But I think as a, as a person who reads a lot about these topics and then, you know, you kind of have your own Petri dish all of a sudden of your own family, it makes you start to look at them and say, hey, I just, just in the back of my mind at least, I'm curious, what's motivating that? Like, why doesn't my older daughter help out? And I think part of the reason, this is where it gets a little bit more intricate, a lot of parents out there will relate to this, but I think part of the reason my older daughter doesn't rush to help me with the garbage is because she's never gonna be my middle daughter. She's never gonna get the same sort of 
impact of helping me that the middle daughter will, because the middle daughter had their shoes on first, and she's going to be running out the door with me right away. So the other daughter's like, look, I'm never going to get the same sort of narcissistic benefit from this activity. The, the middle daughter sucked all that oxygen out of the room, so I may as well just lay low on this one and not, not and focus on something else. So it's not that she's not motivated, but the, the motivation will come from something else. Something else, yes, that's, exactly. That's so interesting. In a moment, Sanjay Gupta on the power of saying no. The latest insights on how physical exercise impacts the brain. And we'll return to parenting and an issue many mothers and fathers will face. Now, if my kid came to me and said, hey, I'm really interested in trying marijuana. How Sanjay Gupta would answer that question in a moment on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest, neurosurgeon, chief CNN medical correspondent, author, and father, my friend and former CNN colleague, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. As I was thinking about preparing for this interview, I said the best way I can prepare for this interview based on what I've learned from Sanjay Gupta is to go for a run this morning. And that's what I did. And I didn't have much Good time. Good for you. And I did that because I just, the latest piece I read from you, I think, had to do with how building a strong mind may be more influenced by physical exercise than mental. So. Give me an update on what you've learned about the connection between mind and body and the role of physical exercise. A, a lot of this, this um, learning, I think, for the scientific community came about because they study diseases. And, and uh, the, the idea of studying diseases of the brain and trying to understand what really helps those diseases of the brain uh, has become an increasingly fascinating topic and, and very, very timely because, you know, we're dealing with this increasing numbers of people with dementia and all sorts of other neurodegenerative problems. But I think what was interesting, most interesting to me and I think to a lot of people was the idea that cognitive exercises, doing crossword puzzles and all that sort of stuff, while it could help, what seemed to have the most predictable benefit was, was physical exercise. And they, they started assigning all sorts of mechanisms as to why, was this increased blood flow, was it, was it just time not thinking about something, was that really the key, that you spend time not thinking about anything in particular? We're, we're not exactly sure, but physical exercise, both objectively and subjectively, seems to have a huge difference. It, you, you can actually see an increase in the growth of certain areas of the brain people who regularly physically exercise, as well as performing better on some of these, these types of cognitive exams. It's not, now, now to be clear, it's not to say that doing stuff with your brain besides physical exercise isn't helpful. Um, learning a new skill, for example, really helpful. Putting something together. I like putting my kids' toys together. I, I, I'm the one who does that in part selfishly because reading the instructions, putting the toy together, I put my girl's scooter together yesterday. Uh, it, that's good for my brain and I feel better about it and, and, and I think the, the evidence is there. But the physical exercise you ran this morning, I ran this morning, that seems to have one of the most predictable consistent benefits. And we keep on hearing and I, uh, even when we were working together a few years ago, I think we had some conversations in the back of a car going from one story to another talking about brain plasticity, which yeah. is a, a field that continues to evolve. 
I mean, you just talked about the evidence of physical exercise growing the brain. We can see it. Did you learn in medical school that that was possible? No. In, in medical school, it was very dogmatic almost the other way, which, which I find really curious and interesting now. And I, it, it, it raises larger questions about education overall. But, but I think the, the, the mantra at that time, both for the brain and the heart, was if, you, if you're going to lose it, if you, if you have a stroke, for example, so, or a heart attack, those areas that have been affected are gone and you're not going to get them back. Uh, same thing with spinal cord injuries, for example, with the spinal cord. Um, and, and the idea that you could do things that uh, would, would bring those, those areas back, not just recircuit around them, but actually bring those areas back in some way, that just wasn't part of our, our learning, our teaching, or our thinking, meaning that we didn't drive ideas to help enhance that. The brain and spinal cord are part of the central nervous system. If the spinal cord is injured, people would look at that area of injury and say, oh, you know, the neurons, the, the areas there have died, the spinal cord cells have died, and you're not getting anything back. There's nothing, you don't regenerate anything. And what we realize, we're just studying diseased spinal cords, we're studying diseased brains. Once you start to look at healthy brains and healthy spinal cords, all of a sudden you see this remarkable ecosystem of constant regeneration, almost this constant sifting through of, of, of various cells that make up the brain and spinal cord that are regenerating constantly. And once we realize that, that started to change the way we approached the brain, the heart, you know, all sorts of different areas of the body. So it has changed even over the last 20 years, 25 years since, since I was in, in medical school. So, and I think you've seen a lot of research in that area now as well. And this brings us to a, a recurrent theme, I think, in your career, which is you are constantly, I know, from knowing you, reevaluating your assumptions. Right. And one of the boldest cases was really just a few years ago when you did your special weed. Yeah. Uh, you initially opposed legalizing marijuana for medical reasons, then you did a deeper dive, and this is an example of where breaking news isn't necessarily the latest news. You looked into some old research as right. well as the latest research, and tell me what you concluded, and then I have a follow-up question for you, sure. because a lot of parents are gonna wanna know what the implications of this is, but you, you had some conclusions that you drew after a deep dive on medical marijuana. I, I will read. Uh, what's what's happening in various worlds, even if I'm not necessarily reporting on it at the time. I do a lot in the neuro world. And I had written a, a, a article for Time Magazine some time ago about medicinal marijuana. And you look at the body of literature in the United States, and you start to draw some conclusions if you just look at it in the macro. First of all, um, there are a lot of studies out there that, that were looking into medicinal marijuana. But the vast majority in our own sort of scientific conclusion was over 90%, close to 94% of those studies were looking at the harm of marijuana. Um, only about 6%, fewer than 10% certainly, were looking at the benefit. If you looked at that from a macro level, you'd say, wow, this stuff doesn't look very good. Everything I'm reading says about how it could cause this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. Very small numbers showing any benefit. What happened a few years ago for me was I started to, to look a little bit more deeply at labs that were not funded by the federal government. I was looking at labs that were outside the United States. I was talking to patients uh, who I had previously dismissed primarily as malingerers who just wanted to get high. And they're just using this as an excuse, as a, as a sort of ladder to get to recreational marijuana. 
and, and, and I stopped dismissing them and listening to them. And when I started to put it all together in aggregate, a different picture started to emerge. And that was what really prompted my own turnaround. I, I realized that there, there, there was definitely medicinal benefit for groups of patients. And even more striking to me was that for those patients, not only did it work, it was oftentimes the only thing that worked. So they had been through the entire sort of medical system. They've tried seven different generations of drugs often for a particular malady. Nothing worked. We started by talking about brain plasticity in the developing brain, and you and I have collaborated on stories uh, how certain things affect kids differently from adults. Uh, as a father, as you see that, and you know that there is another phenomenon, not marijuana for medicinal reasons, but for recreational reasons, just to get high. As a father, what in, in your deep dive in the literature has, what conclusions have you drawn in terms of how you might advise your kids when they get to that age, when kids start experimenting with marijuana? I am not um, uh, in favor of, of recreational marijuana. If you look at the, the developing brain, and you, and you, you said it right, I mean, the, the, our brains develop into our mid-20s. The idea of 18 or 16 as a driving age is totally arbitrary. We are still developing into our 20s, and the part of our brain that develops last is our, our frontal lobes, the areas of the brain that are responsible for judgment and, and uh, the filters. And um, the, the, the literature is, is not 100% conclusive, but I think if you talk to most of the researchers who, who look at cognitive exams, you know, do, do, you, do, you, do you have a cognitive impact if you are someone who's using the substance early on in life and continuously using it? Does it have an impact on your likelihood of, of being able to have a, of a certain jobs, certain ability to do certain things later on? There's evidence that it has an impact. You know, um, How great the impact is, how dose dependent it is, is a little bit of an open question still. Very tough to study a, an illegal substance. So you know you don't have the same sort of data on marijuana that you would on an FDA-approved drug. So but but I think I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, you know if my kid came to me and said hey, I'm I'm really interested in trying marijuana. Do I think trying it once is going to have a huge impact? No. Do I think it's going to have a huge impact on their brain once? No. Do I think it's going to make them an addict? No. I don't think there's evidence of those things at all. But I'm not, I'm not someone who uses these substances. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it uh, to, to someone to just use for recreational reasons. What you find a lot of times for people who are using it recreationally is that they're, they're using it to self-medicate because of other issues in their lives. You know, sometimes it's anxiety, sometimes it's depression. It could be other things. And I think really getting at the root of the problem, like any good doctor should, uh, should, be, should be important for all of us. That, that, that if your kid's asking about it, dive a little deeper with your kid. Find out what's, what's really going on here. What's driving that? Is it just curiosity? Or is there something else that, that, that might be driving it? And then I read in, in sort of in, in one of your pieces that you wrote about the medicinal marijuana, you said, by the way, as a father, I would, I would advise at least if they're going to try it to wait until what age? Yeah, you know, it's this, in the mid-20s, you know, the, the, the brain um, is, is still developing then. So, again, I, I, people would, would love to have a, a, an absolute correlation. If you try it at age 23, you're going to have this impact, or 24. That, that part of it's not an exact science. But I think part of the reason I would say that wait till you're 25 is for two reasons. One is that your brain is probably fully developed, and you're going to have less of an impact from this substance on your brain. 
But two is because it's fully developed, you might actually say, you know what, I don't really need it. I, you know, my, my frontal lobes have kicked in now, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pining away now for 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 trying the stuff. You have these two books that I consider bookends, Chasing Life and Cheating Death. And right. I think it was in Chasing Life that you said you examined the islands of Hokkaido in Japan where they have more centenarians than any place on Earth. And this three factors contributed to that longevity, you can tell us. <laughs> when it comes to diet and nutrition, first of all, uh, they're, they're, you know, they don't really abide by any particular diets. They, they eat uh, foods that are, when you start to examine them scientifically, are arguably the finest fuels for the human body. They provide instant energy. They're broken down rapidly. They don't. They don't uh, transform themselves into particularly uh, problematic chemicals in the bodies. And All the these foods specifically are um, well. Uh, tofu, for example, um, is is probably the best example of that. The high protein source. Fish, you know, because of the omega-3 fatty acids. Lots of fruits and vegetables, and I think primarily the absence of processed foods. By the way, it's changing there as it is everywhere in the world. We're, we're exporting some of the bad habits from, from convenient societies everywhere. But that, that was sort of what really, I think, was the, you know, the, everybody ate real food. They didn't have conversations about high fructose corn syrup because it didn't exist. And, and then the second element I remember is, is movement, not exercise per se, but constant movement. They don't have a word for gyms in, in Okinawa. Gym, go to the gym, what, is it? what do you mean go to the gym? You wanna exercise? Just, I mean, you, you walk to your work, you know, do, do things all day long, natural movements, it's the way human beings were designed. Then that third factor, which is the one we've already spoken about in many ways, but tell me the Japanese word and how it translates. It's, uh, it's ikigai, ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. And, um, you know, it's, 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 there's um, different translations for this, but what it essentially means is your sense of purpose in life. And um, that, that sounds like a pretty, pretty fundamentally easy thing to grasp, but what, what I think it means to everyone is a little bit different. Uh, for, for the people in Okinawa, when you ask them why they live so long, they would give you all the other reasons. They would say, you know, we push the plate away when we're 85% full. Harahachibu, we never stuff ourselves. That's part of their diet. Harahachibu. Harahachibu, we move all day long. Natural movements, that's just part of their lives. Um, but ikigai was something else. Ikigai was the, the most insightful part of it for me because it was they wake up in the morning and they know what their sense of purpose is. And you have to have a sense of purpose in order to keep living. You have to know how you're going to be better today than you were yesterday, how you can be a better father. Stop right there. You have to know how you're going to be better today than yesterday. Now I'm going to ask you a question that again, a therapist once asked me to do this exercise. And it has to do with the fear of death which is very connected uh -huh. to your purpose in life. And he said, try writing your living obituary now. I said, what is a living obituary? He said, you write it in third person, past tense, and then when you get to the end of it, first of all, you've shaped your narrative in a way that helps you make more sense of your life, but best thing of all, you're still alive. You can start to think about how you want to write the next chapter of that living obituary. You know, Stephen Covey, for example, starts off his book, seven, the, the Habits of Highly Effective People, saying that, you know, seven of your friends are going to give a toast at your funeral. What are they going to say? Who are those people? What are they going to say? And he, he was sort of driving at two points. One is that, what, what is your legacy? And two is, who are the seven people that you want to go, go make sure they're saying nice things about you when you die? 
Or do you have seven people in your life who are going to say nice things about you when you die? By the way, none of them can be family members. So, you know, you, you, it just gets you thinking about things in different ways. Again, I do believe that it's there inside of you, but, but it's just a question of, of, of using certain exercises to pull it out. But for me, you know, d d w w if I was to start doing the living obituary, what, what I come to realize, and this has, this, this sounds uh, almost, almost uh, reductionist when you think about it, but it is, it is uh, a, a, a narcissistic sort of thing for me. And I think the fact that my children will be the ones who, who, who are most likely to live out my legacy, most likely to fully understand who their father was and, and, and carry out some of the things I hoped for the world or w hoped for them or whatever it may be, it would be that I was a really good father. That would be first and foremost, that I was that good father. Um, and and uh, if they were saying it, it would, it, and it was in my obituary, it would mean a lot. Not just because it's a nice thing to hear, but it meant that they trusted what I had to teach them, that they were going to probably carry out some of those things, and that there's no greater legacy if you believe in, in, in the conventional concept of death. That, that's it. So it, it, that, that's how it would start for me. Of course, I would want other, you know, nice things mentioned, and I'd probably want them to also write that I was able to, to um, acknowledge mistakes uh, and problems in my life and learn from them and teach other people about those things. As I have worked with you and followed you, and I'm sure I'm not the only one with this feeling, we wonder, how do you do, and I'm sure other people have asked you this, how do you do all these things and still get sleep and still have this, you know, energy to be a great parent, do you say no enough? And, and what do you, what's the best no that you've ever said that's defended your most critical of yeses? Wow, this is a, this is a, this, again, you're hitting on all the, the um, things that I probably think about the, the most. And I will, you know, say that I, I'm not, I'm not great at this. I mean, I think that there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of, when you're managing different aspects of your life, uh, you, you do run, the real challenge of, of um, overcommitting yourself and and uh, putting yourself into a position where you ignore the things that maybe give you the greatest joy or you you, you don't spend enough time on those things anyways. I, I think that um, I've always wanted to be someone who who underpromised and overdelivered. I sleep well at night if I'm underpromising and overdelivering. So it, it it does become a question of being really. Uh, just very, very transparent and 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 uh, forthright. So, I'll give you an example. When I started here in in Atlanta, I came to take a job in the Department of Neurosurgery at the Emory Clinic. Uh, the the chairman over there is someone I admire very, very much, and I wanted to work with this chairman. Thought I, he would teach me a lot, and I would grow my own professional career. At some point, uh, not long after I moved here. Uh, I was going to do, do commentary on CNN, primarily in 2001. It was going to be about the first year of, of the first term of W's presidency and his health care plan. That's what, that was sort of a lot of what we talked about initially when I started here. Because that was my background. I, I did health. and I did health policy as well. Uh, and, and the world changed after 9-11. Everybody's world changed. That's what happened to me. But my point is that when I decided that I was going to layer in the CNN part to my life, I went and did a meeting with my chairman and every other partner in my group at Emory. 
uh, we have a grand rounds where everyone's aggregated and I said I'd like to give a presentation and I got up there and said hey this is something I'm thinking about doing here's why I see it there's where I see the value in it I think doctors complain a lot about uh, medical messaging they say that they're not a part of the system and and uh, I want to be a part of the system I'm not I want to be on the sidelines just bickering about it I want to actually do something and uh, but as part of that uh, I'm not going to be as available so I've already talked to you know the, my partners uh, who, who are senior partners about how that'll affect my pay how it'll affect my call how that affect everything I just want to be a hundred I don't want anyone to have any bad feelings about how this all come together and in the end, I had 14 who are my partners, advocates from the neurosurgery world for this career in journalism. They were advocating for me. They were rooting for me. They were helping me. And they were talking at national meetings about this. And all of a sudden, I'm getting asked to go to the AMA and talk about this sort of work. And people are saying, hey, we want to get more involved in medical journalism. So I think, I think under-promising, over-delivering in the sense that I, I know that I'm not going to do as much as I did here in this department of neurosurgery. But here's, you know, but so I'm, I'm making sure I'm clear on what I can do. I'm not going to say I'm still working 100% here if I'm not, but, but then I still over-delivered. I'd take people's call when they were away for weekends. I, I would do anything to sort of just continue to make sure I was really entrenched in that world, in that department. And I think that's just became a sort of mantra for my life, under-promise, over-deliver. You know, I say no a, a lot, and I think one area where I've become most proud of saying no is, is around things that are that are going to take me away from my family and and being able to say no and just that's it I have a job proposal for you because I mean you started by going to that team of 14 neurosurgeons and saying you know I want to do medical news coverage because we have to have a voice mm -hmm. in the broader community and now I'm listening to everything you're curious about and how well you articulated it I'm saying I'm sorry, I have to talk to, to my former bosses at CNN and say, Sanjay should not just be a medical correspondent. Mm. Maybe you should be the person on the air three hours a day. I don't know if you'd say no to that, but it seems that you are so curious about so much, much of which has nothing to do with medicine. Is there going to be a time for a transition for you to take a totally broader approach? I, 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 um, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so, and I'll tell you, and I'm not sure, you and I have probably talked about this at some point or another. I, I think that um, I love medicine and science so much, and there's so much there that I don't think I'd ever really get to do all that I wanted to do, even within that area, um, if, I, if I worked here the rest of my life, you know? And I think the, the I have a lot of respect for my colleagues who, who anchor shows and all that. The problem, I think, a little bit, and again, I respect them greatly, and I, and I think a lot of them are, are really curious people. I love the conversations, but I think the system is not designed to allow you to really do deep dives into these topics. It gets back to what we were talking about earlier, where you, you get, a, you get a, um, like a child who's really interested in a particular class in school, and then all of a sudden, just as they start to get into it, it's time for French, or it's time for whatever, and it, it, it just, it's, it's tougher to take the deep dives, I think, when you have to be a master of, of or at least a, a, a jack of many different topics. So that, that is your fundamental positive no. It's no, I am, I am rejecting, I'm saying no to broader, much broader news coverage so that I can say yes to the, most, the thing I'm most critically interested yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. Sanjay. You know what, it's like I, I, I knew if I came without a list of questions, we, we've always had the best conversations, but I, I, I really I enjoyed this so much. Oh, me too, yeah, we could, we, could, uh, we could talk all day. 
You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. If you don't know how, just go to my homepage on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it slash Wavemaker and click on the purple iTunes logo. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.